Welcome to Sports, Clicks, and Politics with your hosts, Ben Husson and me, Sean Hannon. It is Monday. Welcome to Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Ben, did you just drop something? I just dropped my phone. No. Well, hopefully it's not a broken screen that we can't fix in uh, two seconds here. No, Welcome, good. everybody. Thank you for joining us again. It's another Monday here, another week here of Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Um, I think we got a pretty good, fun show today, yeah? I mean, I don't know if fun's quite the word, but... Sure. It's frustrating, I think, for the interview after... I mean, that was a really, really good interview I think we have at the end of the show. If you guys don't know, we are have uh, Kevin McKernan on. He's a scientist. He's the... Uh, chief science officer at a company he founded called Medical Genomics, where he breaks down the genome of the cannabis plant, but he's formerly of the Human Genome Project. Uh, we brought him on to talk about PCR testing because that's what he does, and uh, it was very informative. Um, Stay tuned till the end. You're yes, so it's a very, very good one. interview. We'll prep that before we get to it, but that's what we'll have in the interview. Um, Want to talk about sports? Yeah, let's have some fun. How was your weekend? My weekend was you know, good, the bills actually. were off, right? So bills were off. Uh, I went to, you know, I coached my son's flag football team. So that's cool. Are they the bills too? They're, they're the green machine. Actually, they're team number two and they're green. So we named them the green machine. Um, so they did good. We, uh, we ended up in a tie. We had a kid get uh, brought down at the one yard line on fourth and goal to end the game, which was a little disappointing. I drove a bunch of the kids home afterwards, though. They decided that since we were closer to scoring, we won the game. So who am I to argue with logic like that? I mean, that obviously makes total sense. Absolutely. That's how My weekend was not that exciting. No? Um, Yeah, I did a whole lot of nothing. But uh, we did watch some NFL. I'd watched my Steelers go to 10-0. Not bad. I, you know, they played the Jaguars. So if they lost, it would have been, you know, as about as shocking as an overturning of an election. So I... (laughs) I wasn't expecting them to lose, but I think they ended up winning, like, I don't know, something something a lot to a three. To three, yeah, I so, believe, was the final. Um, the game wasn't on TV, but I did watch uh, the, what was it? The Browns? No, the, I, that game was on, too, but I could not stomach that game. I mean, what game did the you Eagles. Watch? You watched, so you could stomach the Eagles? No, 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 they played the Browns. Oh, that's right. That's what I said, I couldn't that's watch that right. game. That's right, my bad. No, the other game was the... Uh, Baltimore and uh, Tennessee. It was a good game. That was a good game, yeah. actually. So that, that was, was entertaining. Um, neither one of them in the top five, though, or in the Power Five for the sports clicks and politics ranking. So both of those former former Power Five teams. Neither one of them. Yeah, I uh, I get it. There was some very surprising games this week in the NFL. The Cowboys muddled their way into a victory somehow over the Vikings. After the Vikings beat the Packers, like none of this makes sense any longer. But I guess that's why we like the NFLs because truly on any given Sunday, um, yeah. Well, so you know, I said the Steelers, so they stay at the top of my list. They're ten and zero. The Chiefs, uh, they pulled out a win uh, Sunday night last night, and they also stayed number two in my list. So I feel it looks like, like Patrick Mahomes is a real life cheat code. Like it's not fair. No, no, he's crazy. It's, he's yeah. And all credit to Andy Reid because I, uh, the schemes that they run are unbelievable. How how did Alex Smith hold him are. off for a whole year? Uh, because he wanted to learn. I mean, I guess. I mean, come on. He had to learn. And listen, if you got somebody to learn under, Alex Smith is actually not a bad guy, especially no, when you are. But clearly, the talent level is that's the thing. Though massive. Listen, it's not the most talented players that make the best coaches. It's the guys that have no business being in the league, but somehow, like Alex Smith, has been a starting quarterback for how many years now? 
Too many. It's not because he's super talented. It's because he just hit, he understands the game at a different level. Uh, yeah, but I mean, at some point, talent usually just wins out. As I said, he's played really well that year, so it's hard for me to. to but I mean, like, the, but the, the, the talent fact, won out. The, the the idea that Mahomes sat behind him for a year is a little bit joking. Um, then I have the Saints at number three again. Uh, another win. They had no Drew Brees and no Jameis Winston this week. What happened to Drew, uh, Jameis Winston? Eh, he punched the coach or something. Usually gets you benched. <laughs> so funny. Jameis. Oh, Maybe they James. should go for crab legs. Oh, and they, uh, and so the final two of my power five, one stays the same but didn't move. That was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I kept them at five. Fair. <clears throat> New entry into the power five here at Sports Clicks and Politics. Oh, boy. The Indianapolis Colts. It's hard to argue. Upset the Green Bay Packers. I don't yeah. know if it was really an upset. It was kind of like uh, kind of one of the marquee games. I think it was pretty close spread there. I'd still I call it, it was, an upset. Um, Marquee-wise, for sure. I think the Packers had a better brand name. But the Colts pull it out. Uh, I have them now at number four. Um, Phillip Rivers relocating to Indianapolis seems to have uh, found a little bit of a groove here, and they seem to be playing well. So uh, there's my power five. Do we have a bottom five, Mr. Busong? Oh well, we've got a bottom. I mean, no, we, we all know the Jets are number are the bottom. The That's the way you do to, this five or one thing. But the, the Jets at the very bottom, which is wonderful, have already eliminated themselves from playoff contention this year Solid. after week 10. That's cool. Always seven weeks left in the season, and you don't have a chance at the playoffs. That's when you know your season's going really well. Uh, the next worst team I've got is the Cincinnati Bengals. I know the team has done fairly well, but Joe Burrow just tore his ACL and he'll be out for this entire year and hopefully back in time to start next year. So let's just call that what it is. That team is now on the clock, as you like to say. Yes, for sure. You're not doing anything without Burrow. Sorry, guys. Um, whoever that was that came in relief, and this is how bad he was. I didn't bother to learn his name. Because that's how bad whatever happened after Joe Burrow left. I didn't even bother to look yet. See, there you go. And the next worst team, and this was close, I will acknowledge it, is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, not that I expected huge things coming from the uh, the Jags as they went up against the Steelers, but you you could at least look like you belong on the same league as this team. I think they were up 3 nothing. Congratulations. I think it's the second lead they've had all season. So it's quite I was nervous for like three minutes. Smart. Uh, and so the the Jaguars Bengals are probably like a toss up between two and three, uh, and then for fourth and fifth place, I have a four way tie, and I don't know how to break it out because basically I have the Eagles Giants Cowboys and the Washington Football Team collectively take the bottom to the last two spots. I have no idea which one of those four teams is the worst. I think it might actually be the Eagles, even though they're leading that division. I think the Falcons are terrible. The Falcons are terrible, but they're not as... They, they have mastered losing this year, so they should just be like an honorable like plug-and-play in, in the bottom five. You know what makes me they so... they take losing to a new level. What, what makes the Falcons so uh, interesting is how they lose. It's they, not they just love they snatching lose. defeat out of the jaws of victory. Every single, like, I don't know, every three weeks, they just have a game wrapped up and then they blow it. So It's the kind of thing like how the Bills lost last week on a, on the last second Hail Mary and you're just ejected. That's The, the Falcons have had those losses like four times this year yeah, already. Terrible. Remember the onside kick? Unbelievable. Remember the onside kick? Yeah, from da- last year. Dallas got this win. Oh, from earlier this year, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, yeah. Dallas, Dallas basically... Atlanta, all they had to do was recover the onside kick, and the, the guy was backing away, trying to get, let it go 10 yards. Fun. Oh, my God. It's on, yeah, the Falcons probably should be in there, but I watched some of the Eagles game against the Browns this week. 
I've got, now I watched some of the Eagles Giants last week as well. And I came away thinking, well, the Giants are actually a little better than I thought they were. And then the Eagles, I was like, well, maybe it's a division game. You don't really know. It's hard to say. But then watching them come out against the Browns, they're just not good. They're just a bad football team. And I'm not trying to, like, pick on Carson Wentz or anything else. They're just not good. Yeah, I mean, they've had a lot of injuries, so these pieces are just coming back. But, yeah, I they no, nobody in that division looks good. So, But somebody's going to win. So, somebody's going to be in the playoffs. Anybody's division. And a, home, and a home playoff game, whatever that's worth. You know, I mean, with, it helps, have no fans. for sure. But with no fans, it's probably not going to make a big difference. Yeah. Um, I'm inclined to give Washington, if you put a gun to my head, as the spot just because they don't have a team name, and I don't like that. So that's really the extent of it. Outside of that... Gun to my head, I do think that the worst two teams in that division at this point in time are still the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, I, cause, I think that's how it's going to shake out. Yeah, because I think Dalton can get you a win like he did this week, right. but he's not. I he's mean, not he's, the answer. At least no. Go back to yours. I Look at Phillip Rivers, and the reason I hesitate, the Colts offense is incredible. They have great skill players, great position players, good lines, everything you want. I don't trust Phillip Rivers because I've seen this movie before. I've seen this guy this, with all this, the talent. This, this may be his best defense he's played. I mean, the last couple of years in Phillip Rivers' career in San Diego, they had some defense that kept getting banged up with injuries. Yeah, but, but early the, on the, they had, like, the Sean Merriman defenses that sure, were This Colts, yeah, and that's when they got to the Super Bowl, right? So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. So, like, here's maybe a chance where, you know, and, a, and a, you know, he's only got a couple years left and before he has to go make another 12 kids. The um, He's... He's, listen, they're playing good, and their defense is really good. So I cheer for anybody who has more kids than me, so let's go, Phil. Oh, yeah, he's in that list. Because so. I like that idea. Also, returning to your point on the Falcons should have their own unique position on the bottom five. I don't disagree, but it brings up a point that I've thought about a lot. I think Ryan Fitzpatrick should have his own category to get into the Hall of Fame. And would you like to tell us what that category is? How did this guy start for eight different football teams and put up these stats? This guy has about as much. I, I don't want to besmirch him. But he's actually one of my favorite NFL players I've ever watched play football. But he's not that talented. Like He's not that good. He's a Harvard graduate, obviously incredibly smart, with just this ridiculous attitude towards everything where he just comes in and slings the ball. He wears short show, shorts. He grows this j- ridiculous beard. Everywhere this man goes, he starts and he wins football games. It's, he produces fantasy stats too. Like I mean, there's been some <clears throat> some really really weeks where you had to have Fitzpatrick in your lineup, I, you know, I, in, in a, in a DraftKings perspective. So if there's if you're a starting quarterback in the NFL and your team goes and gets Ryan Fitzpatrick as your backup, demand a trade because you're going down. <laughs> like I don't understand why, but Ryan, it started with the Rams. You went to the Bengals, same thing happened there. Went to the Bills, same thing happened there. Went to the Jets, same thing happened there. Went to the Dolphins, same thing happened there. Here, one more stop in there. I missed one. Uh. Somebody will know. Sorry, but I yeah. can't remember. But God bless this guy. And then he comes out, and all of a sudden, you're like, everybody laughs off Ryan Fitzpatrick. And then you look at the stats for like three weeks in a row, 340 yards, five touchdowns, two picks. And you're going, Wasn't he with Tennessee for a while? Is, it might have been Tennessee. Like, is Ryan Fitzpatrick good? And then he comes out one game later. He goes 15 for 38 for 108 yards and four picks. Yeah. Which I, I think, I've, like I said, there's been weeks where he has had six touchdown passes, and I feel like there's been weeks where he's had like three or four picks. For sixes. sure. <laughs> I, it's so, amazing. I, this guy deserves his own but, place. I don't understand his career. It makes no sense. None. Yeah, interesting. But think about the money this man has made in the NFL just over the, like his career. Is this? Uh, let's call, be very generous and say. Do we know what he studied in Harvard? Cause he, I think it was economics, actually. Uh, well, he probably did good. He probably was a better football player. I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's no money in economics, I guess is really my point. It's probably better that he went into football. I mean, he could have been a stock trader. Could have, could have done all that. I guess. Could have charted Bitcoin. Maybe, yeah, I was going to say, maybe he could have charted Bitcoin. Who is it? Nearing all-time highs. Mr. Was, Fitzpatrick, if you're listening. 
If you are, can we get you to chart some Bitcoin? Like, just think about it as yeah, your next endeavor. Some, do I know Mr. Fitzpatrick? How the hell would I know? Oh. So, but you, anyways, let's talk Bitcoin. Yeah, they're all, nearing all-time highs. I'm actually going to, I don't know if you uh, have pulled it up. Uh, I can't see the uh, actual price right now, but uh, it's been hovering around 18.3, 18.5 most of the day. I think it got as high as 18.9. Um, I know you were a big 18.4. Uh, 18.4, there we are, right in the middle. What, how's your Ethereum doing? My Ethereum has skyrocketed. Is I it, don't understand what happened. As you, are you above 600 now? I'm at $597 per Ethereum coin. What about X? How about XRP? Hang on. Do you have one of those? I don't have any XRP, but it's at 55 cents, which is up 19%. I, I literally had a client ask me. buying those at 17 cents. I had a client ask me a about it over the weekend of what should I do with cryptocurrency? And I said, you should talk to somebody that knows more than me because <laughs> I don't understand what the hell is happening. All I know is I put some money in and it's worth almost four times as much now as compared to January. I don't understand why. I, I don't understand what happened. I just know that it's there. And I laugh. And the guy that actually turned me on to the Ethereum likes to text me periodically with screenshots of it and like laughing emojis like, hope you didn't sell yet. I didn't. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah um, no, it, it's, it can be quite the ride. Uh, this would be my second rodeo, if that's how you want to label them. Uh, we do went that. Through, going through, two seven, through uh, 2017, 2018, the first kind of really run up to what was now the all-time high, which I think is like 199750 something, right. something like that. Um, so uh, we're floating here. I think we got we, we hovered about uh, just under 19,000, so pretty close to a, uh, uh, you know, a few hundred bucks away, which when it gets this high, you'll notice that it seems like, oh, my God, it moved $100, but just moving, you know, fractions of a percent now because the price is getting so high so right. some of these moves seem wild and with if you haven't been paying attention to it for long enough they are wild um but then you start realizing that the percent move is uh less wild even though that can be uh pretty staggering watching even that as you point out with xrp up 19 percent, and it was yeah. up i think it was up like 40 percent yesterday so Man. um crazy crazy world of crypto um check out episode 24 we had chuck williams on he kind of gives a uh background of bitcoin uh, helps us out uh, figure out why it's important and why we should do and uh his motto if you guys listened to him last week where he says get off zero would have paid out pretty well for you i mean that would have been a good call yeah would have been so. i but it's the same thing that i always go back to if if somebody asked me why Okay, it's a good hedge. It, it, it it's a big. T- I, I mean, I think in, in seriousness, I think there is some long term reason to hold Bitcoin. Agreed. Um, I, I don't know that necessarily this is the highest price or the you know it could it could eventually function at a much lower price. For all I know, I don't I don't think that's the case. I think it's going to function at a much higher price. But I think it's going to function for as long as we have the internet. So um, somebody's going to want it. Somebody's going to trade for it. Somebody's going to take it as, as, as trade or barter or currency for something else. Yeah. And it's going to have some functional value, whether or not that means it's going to hover around 20,000 the whole time. And you can use that as, uh, um, or if it's going to fluctuate wildly in prices, that kind of tends to make a for a bad currency. If you, if you guys are aware that the first uh, Bitcoin transaction was a pizza that sold for 10,000 Bitcoin. Nice. Yeah. That pizza place is probably pretty happy right uh, now. If they still have the Bitcoin. I hope they do. Right. I hope they do too. So um, I don't know, um, but I do think that uh, it's, it's worth looking into. It's, it's again, you, I mentioned it when you came in. It's, it's fun to watch the, the ticker just keep going up, right? Oh, it's always a blast. I, and I, I get the, 
the planning perspective on why somebody would want to own Bitcoin. I, I really do, actually. It, it is a hedge. It is a, if you're a futurist, you think this is where the currencies are heading in some form or another. That all makes sense to me, and I get it. If you ask me to explain to you why is a Bitcoin worth $18,000, I can't explain it. I don't know. And that's what I can't track on it is I don't understand why the Ethereum is now worth $600 versus when I first put it in, it was worth $150 per Ethereum coin or whatever the term is. I don't, I don't understand it. I think that I bought it because I am long-term bullish on the idea of cryptocurrencies. I right. don't know which one. And, and there is some differences between Ethereum, the Ether, the XRP, sure. all these other things that I mentioned, and Bitcoin, only in a sense that Bitcoin is actually traded by, like, you know, the CME group, right? So, like, there is right. actually big institutional trading going on with Bitcoin that is not really happening um, with these other cryptocurrencies at all. Now, that being said, most Bitcoin transactions are not being done through Coinbase or any. They're being done in, in, in massive swaps outside of the system. So you're never going to see those swings. You're almost never going to see those purchases within the movement. So sometimes you hear about those much, you know, after the fact um, where people find, you know, they can track these blockchains. They can see a transaction has happened, um, but they really don't know the, you know, the details of that transaction. But sometimes that can, you know, massive, the biggest transactions don't happen on Coinbase, I promise you. So um, it's fun to watch. I say we'll keep it going. It's been going up for a few weeks here. Uh, We'll keep an eye on it. And uh, I don't know if you guys have questions about any of these uh, cryptocurrencies, be sure to plug away and I'll do the best I can to answer them. There you go. Um, so let's turn to the, the national news here for a little bit. Um, President Trump, on the way out, we all assume, um, unless you're going to break news and think that there's going to be some overturn of the election. Yeah. Okay. So on his way out, does he have a chance to reshape his legacy Um with what seems he's setting himself up to at least have the opportunity. He has replaced the secretary of defense. Yep. Allowing for a, uh, a transition there that brings in somebody who is looking to withdraw some troops, uh, downsize the presence there. Um, and at least Afghanistan and Iraq, I believe. So, uh, maybe other places as well. We'll find out. Can Trump be, or can he, you know, the, 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 his supporters are, are his supporters, but and his detractors are going to be his detractors, and we know that there's a, a large faction of both of those. Sure. But can there be the people who were like, all right, I'm going to vote for this guy because I don't like the other person, and maybe there's some there. Can, can his legacy change from a game show host, bombastic, uh, whatever guy, to somebody who I think what was really popular when he ran on was a president of peace where he said, you know, he basically called out Jeb Bush saying that the wars in Afghanistan were a mistake. Um and he said his brother lied him into war, right? So that probably had never been said on national television before, and especially in a Republican presidential debate. So can he follow through on that in the last few months in office here? And does that change his legacy, especially if he does follow through and, and, and withdraw these troops in significant ways and also pardons people like Edward Snowden, uh, pardons people like uh, Julian Assange, uh, maybe Ross Albright. I don't know. Do you know who Ross Albright is? I don't is? know. I'm not so Ross, Ross Albright. Albright um, he was the founder of the Silk Road, which was, maybe still is, a dark web uh, um, eBay, if you will. It was a, it was a way for people to transact uh, outside of people's eyes, anyone. So there were a lot of uh, drug transactions. And there were other transactions going on that probably were even worse than that. Um, 
but this guy just created the website, if you will, just created the the platform for it. And he went to jail, I think at like age 25 and is never going to get out. So, um, those are kind of people that like, you know, he, he wasn't selling drugs. He wasn't buying drugs. He wasn't doing anything. He just created this platform, this, this outlet, this, this, you know, transactional home for people who wanted to do things outside of that. And that everybody was doing it outside of the law, but yeah. clearly they were being used um, just like cash can be used for nefarious purposes. Um, but anyway, so this, it was very Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general were used widely in, in the uh, Silk Road too. So just kind of bring it back to that. But anyway, so wow. can, can pardoning people like these, um, the Edward Snowdens, the Albrights and the Assange's of the world paired with a troop withdrawal, can that change his legacy? What say you, Mr. Hughesong? A short answer, yes. I, I mean, I do think that ultimately if you, if you do that and you go down that road, that does become a large part of your legacy. Um, do I think he would do it for like such, some high and noble purpose? No, I, I mean, I think there's never one reason for anything. There was always a multitude of reasons, but watching his actions right now with cleaning house at the Department of Defense and, and what he's been setting up now, I do anticipate that he's going to withdraw nearly all the troops before the end of the year. That's my guess. And then what that does is it puts Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, into the position of, do you send them back? And I don't, it's a tough sell to the American people, I got to believe. Well, the answer is going to be yes. Joe Biden's going to send him back. And look, I, I, don't, I think there's this common misconception that it's all Republicans that want the wars on all the Democrats don't want the wars. I, it's just not a true statement at this point. Everybody we, wants the wars. There's like five people who don't want the wars. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sadly the truth, though, is if you look through and, and if you look through the Obama-Biden presidency of eight years of what the actions were in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was no um, there was no good plan to get out of Afghanistan. There was a terrible plan to get out of Iraq that that people even said like this isn't going to go well, but you did it and and it didn't go well. Hence the rise of ISIS and everything else and having to go back, which was which was bad. And I worry about something like that happening in the event that we do the same thing in Afghanistan. The reason, though, that I'm a little bit more open-minded on Afghanistan is the Afghanistan papers that came out in, uh, in 2019. If you haven't seen those, it's first off a travesty that they have not been more widely covered and more widely disseminated and that anybody does not know that these papers exist is an absolute um, indictment of our United States media corporations because that was it was supposed to be all confidential reporting so people were speaking very freely generals politicians presidents senators everybody was speaking very freely on the record because they were trying to do an internal review of what was going on in Afghanistan and then after a three-year legal battle that got made public when I tell you that we had no plan in Afghanistan for over 10 years I mean we had no plan in Afghanistan. None. We didn't have an objective. We didn't have a goal. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we wanted to do. Every stat, every data point that came out was spun to be a positive no matter what. There was no game plan in Afghanistan whatsoever, which does lead me to the question of what are we doing by being there? What is the upside here? Like what, what in the world is happening right now? with Afghanistan, like, are we doing any, anything positive at all? And if we did pull out, what would be the ramifications? I won't pretend to have an answer. I, I don't know. I, I'm also not sure, and this is, 
this is kind of hard to talk about. I mean, I, I lost a good friend in Afghanistan. Like this, this is not something that I that I come by lightly. And this is why I read the Afghan papers. And I'm and this is the time frame he was there and was killed in action. And I'm looking at this and going, what the "Fuck, was this for? Like, what do we do this for? What What was the point of you? You didn't have an objective. You didn't have a goal in mind. We weren't trying to win. We weren't trying to leave. We weren't trying to get out. We weren't trying to build anything. We weren't doing anything. I think we were just trying to stay." Right. And for whatever reason, we just wanted to stay in Afghanistan. And I and it never made sense to me. In Iraq, we had the surge and we were like the idea was set up this government. You could disagree with the with the plan and everything else. And I think there is plenty of criticism that you could levy on the entire idea of going to Iraq. Should we have been there in the first place? And then what was the plan? Plenty. At least there was a goal. You could disagree with the goal of set up an autonomous government and then leave. That was the goal. In Afghanistan, that stopped being the goal in about 2009 from yeah, what I can the goal was really just to wipe out the people who took down the, twi- the Twin Towers, right? And they did that in like 36 hours. Right. Like they could have been out of there in a week after that and decimated what they needed to decimate. And, you know, history would have been different. And we, the, the, the people who are talking about a rapid withdrawal, like how do you rapid withdrawal of a 19-year war? I mean, what, what are we talking about? It doesn't happen. So, right. And I, hope- I, I don't know. And, and this is the thing, like for anybody that thinks that Joe Biden is, is not is not pro, it would not keep the troops in. I, you're not looking at history. He voted right. for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He voted to keep funding them. He's, he's been on, he was in the Oval Office. Yeah. I have to assume that him and Barack Obama agreed on several policies or at least were somewhat on the same page. Maybe they weren't, and I'm open to that hey, listen, if, he, if he made a change, he could have said something. He had eight years as the second, you know, the, the, the second guy there. He had the, the ear of the vice president, the commander-in-chief, Every single day, and if he wanted to make a uh, pull the troops out of Afghanistan or or do something different than than he seemed to support his whole career, then he could have. He had the opportunity, and right. he didn't. So, um, I don't expect. Listen, it would be a tough sell. I mean, there would have to, you know there would have to be another event type thing to really sell it to the American people. I think to get people to 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 buy into to sending troops back. So. Um, hopefully he, again, I, I really hope he follows through. Um, you know, he's hinted at the Snowden thing a couple times. The Assange thing seems less likely to me because it seems Agreed. like he kind of had a little bit of a, I don't know, a thing for that guy. So that being said, I think Pompeo did kind of meet with him. So maybe there's some room there. The Albright thing is just my own, you know, thing. I'm not sure that, that he gets the, the, the same kind of uh, attention that the other ones do, but he's, you know, a kid who's been basically, uh, you know, I got here. <laughs> Since the back-to-back life sentences plus 40 years for building a website. That was Russ Albrecht got. So, like I said, unless something changes there, you know, he's never going to see the light of day again for building a website. Um, Jeez. I think, I think there's room. I think there's – I think the – I think those three pardons specifically could be – would be well accepted through primarily the majority of, of, of the country um, for all things. So, um, hopefully he does pull, pull those troops out. Hopefully he does pardon um, – some, if not all, of these whistleblowers um, and people who are just put away for basically circumventing the government here. So, uh, speaking of circumventing the government, um, did you see that we have some sheriffs kind of pushing back on your governor? My governor. Your governor? <laughs> My governor. I did see that. I did. Um, I think we have, what, about like 10, 11, yeah, about, something like yeah, that-ish? About, um, about 10 governors. We got a... Maybe a, a big handful plus, maybe almost 10 uh, in western New York, uh, a couple out in Albany area, where these are county sheriffs who have come on the record in some kind of public fashion who basically has said, you know, we're not going to enforce these 
gathering, you know, home rules here where you only can have so many people are in household limits and whatnot. Uh, for Thanksgiving specifically, I think most of them pointed out. Um, but I hope that kind of pushback will be consistent outside of just one day of the year, uh, Thanksgiving. And uh, if any of these restrictions, these stupid home restrictions specifically are, are, are kind of enforced that I can't imagine, I just can't imagine how you would bring your, I, I'm sure they're not being patrolled by any means in, in any of these counties. Um, but even if somebody is going to another uh, neighbor report one of these instances to somebody, the sheriffs would be better off to not do a thing. Um, and like I said, hopefully they will. Um, this is kind of new uh, since we talked last week where governor kind of laid down the, uh, the Thanksgiving rules and some of these sheriffs since then have come out and said, we're not going to enforce them. So good on those sheriffs. Uh, I wish more were doing it. We have 62 uh, counties in the uh, state. So we got, I don't know, maybe 50 more to go. Mm. So just to be clear, acknowledging that the government has absolutely no right to come into your home and tell you who or how many people can be there, regardless of circumstance, acknowledging that reality doesn't mean you're pro virus. Just let's all be clear about something here. Nobody's cheering for COVID-19 in this whole battle. The idea, though, that our elected governor felt no qualms whatsoever and that he was somehow justified and on sound legal footing to tell everybody in his state how many people were allowed inside of their homes is insanity. Recommendation, sure. Request, great. General guidance, outstanding. Illegal? Oh, buddy. Nope, not how this works. Sorry. And then what I found just like, this is what always has impressed me about your governor. Uh, the way that he doubles down on any time that you something is just so outrageous and so outlandish, you can't fathom how he'll ever come back from it. He just doubles down. So like the governor's, the governor passes these rules and says 10 people, that's it. Don't get together for Thanksgiving. And a bunch of the sheriffs were like, it's not close to constitutional. I'm not going to enforce a law that I that I can't defend. I'm not, no, I'm not doing this. And everybody looks back at the governor like, all right, do you get it now why this is not okay? And his response is like, well, frankly, these, this is concerning from a law enforcement officer that they're not just willing to enforce whatever rules that I write. That's, they That's are the violating their constitutional duty. And you're going, did you? Read that particular document at any point when you were in law school? Did, did you did you give it a glance? Did you check Cliff's notes? Because anything that you're trying to propose right now is in violation of that document. You absolutely do not have that authority as a politician to come into my home and tell me who can and cannot be there. There is no chance that holds up in court. There is no chance anybody with a law degree could actually justify that on a constitutional grounds if they were being objective and fair and looking at the relevant case law. It's insanity. And instead of just saying like, yeah, you know what? Maybe that was overreach. I probably should have just made it a recommendation. No, he calls out the sheriffs for violating or not violating, but for abdicating the constitution for not imposing his, what I'm going to call unconstitutional laws. Amazing. I love yeah. this guy. Like I, I don't, I can't stand him, but the balls on this guy are just impressive. Like yeah, the, Listen, you know, I know we talked about that press conference that he had where people were pushing back. I mean, the, the dude is dug in. Um, and like I said, it's his way or the highway. Uh, everyone else be damned. And we're just kind of roadkill along the way here. So, unfortunately, we did get a little bit of uh, local civil disobedience. 
Buffalo. Buffalo, Erie County. I think it was actually Orchard Park. Okay. Um, which is a little south of Buffalo. It's where the Bills play. Yeah. Uh, I used to live in Orchard Park. Did you? Yeah. Right, I right. Near there. The blimp is louder than you think. Is it? Yeah. I could see that. Um, so I- I'm going to play this video. It's not going to play audio because there's some F-bombs in there, and I don't want to play it on the, on the live stream here. So if you want to listen to the whole video, I shared the link earlier. I posted the link in the event. You can listen to it yourself. Um, it'll be on the podcast, so all you guys listening at home will be able to hear this. Uh, so uh, be prepared for at least one F-bomb there. I feel like it's early. I'm only going to play a couple minutes of this. But I kind of want to show you guys, and I'm going to play it here, and then we're going to talk right through it. Um, you can see that there's a. Uh, you can see that there's a. Uh, maybe you can hear it through my my microphone here. This is a this is a gym in Orchard Park. Erie County Department Health and some sheriff deputies show up because somebody reported on this uh, place here. And you can see that there's a you know a, a, a bit of a group. Everybody's got the phone out. They're uh, recording this whole thing. So there's probably other angles here that this is the one that gets shared the most here. Um, yes, it is. And so the, uh, you have to leave. The, uh, you can hear, I don't know if you can hear, there's demands being told they have to leave, they're asking for a warrant, they're, uh, um, you know, it's the business owner and some of the gym owners here, and they're basically pushing them out. Um, they begin to start chanting, I think, just get out over and over and over again, and eventually they start, uh, just, they leave the premises, right? Um, I don't know. Um, and again, I'm gonna no, it's and, not and, the law. Um, we'll it is not the law. Watch the whole thing because it kind of gets pretty uh, contentious. contentious. It is not sure. the law. I feel like it is uh, not the law. I feel like it's um, maybe the beginning of more of this kind of things. Um, I believe there was one bit or one comment even in the video from somebody in the background saying this is the beginning of mass civil disobedience. I don't know if that's necessarily, this is the trigger kind of thing, but I know this video was shared wildly. Um, it's kind of, this is the kind of thing that I feel like people are going to uh, rally around. And the more they see it, the more courage gets built up, the more these businesses stand up to some of these ridiculous rules, the more we get our lives back. I think that's going to happen. What sayeth you, Mr. Hughesong? Um, what do you think of the video? I, listen, I think it's unsurprising. It's the most predictable result you're going to get, and of course you're going to get more of this because it, it's it's insanity. Like people have this misunderstanding of what police and law enforcement officers are allowed to do. They are they are not allowed to come onto your private property and just start looking for things to break up. They have to have reasonable uh, reasonable cause or reasonable belief that a crime is being committed, or they have to have a warrant. So they can come into your public setting. The reason they can institute all these rules in restaurants and in other public places is very simple because they have to have licenses passed by Department of Health and all these other agencies that then are granted oversight powers in order to do this. The government cannot come into your home and tell you what to do inside your home because it's your property and you have rights. So when you come across a protest like this one where if people know their rights the cops are not going to be able to get away with a whole lot, especially not with everything being recorded and them saying, that's why you heard the woman from, I think it was the Department of Health, when they said, this is private property. And she said, well, I could debate that. Oh, really? Well, then let's debate it, which is, and ultimately, it's a tell on her part. She knows it's not. She's just trying to come up with a creative argument. Now, if you're not well-informed and you don't understand the rules, you might believe her. 
and say, oh, shoot, maybe it is public. But if you've looked up the definition of what the difference is and you know you're right, it completely cuts the legs out from under him. So, listen, I am of the opinion still, like, guys, be reasonably smart. Don't be an idiot. It's, it's a virus. It's scary. It's bad. I'm not arguing any of these points. The government still can't come and do this stuff. And the other, I think this is the thing that gets lost the most in the discussions, is you see everybody either saying, guys, the healthcare workers are exhausted and this is bad and you got to wear your mask and you got to do all this stuff. And then the other side tends to come back with, well, the survival rate's 99.9. And the other side's like, well, that's still so many dead people. No, no, no. We're having the wrong argument. Here's the real argument. All of these restrictions, the mask mandates, everything else are having zero impact on the spread of the virus. We are not stopping it. So you're making all of these rules in order to, to fend off, and I'm supposed to sacrifice whatever you want me to give up, business-wise, liberty-wise, economics, everything. All for measures that are having no impact on the spread of the virus. Like, look, look around the world. The countries that are, that are wearing masks are locking down and mandating all these social distancing. They're locking down again. Except the only difference is their schools are still open because they've accepted the reality of the science, which is kids do not spread this virus with any sort of efficiency. Now, am I saying it's physically impossible? No. Now, flip side of that, can you get chicken pox twice? Shingles? The answer is really no. Like, you know that. Now, are there exceptions? Yes, it can happen. But by and large, if I told you, hey, you're not going to get chicken pox twice, you'd say, well, yeah, that's obvious. It's the same thing with kids. They don't spread the virus. So our schools are still closed. Our businesses are still shuttered. We're destroying our entire economy and our entire way of life. We're increasing suicides. We're increasing preventable deaths. We're doing all of this horrific harm, all in the name of virtue signaling so people feel better. Listen, if a mask was all it took to stop this virus dead in its tracks, everybody would be on board. It's a pretty simple thing. It would have already happened. There's been 80% compliance pretty much across the country. Like right. we, would, we, would have, we would have noticed the places where the mask were in use and the mask were not in use. Of course. And this is why every study that comes out to say, well, masks could save X amount of lives by Christmas. Forgive my language. Bullshit. It's bad science. You're using projections that were inaccurate when you made those assumptions two months ago. You knew they were inaccurate and you didn't update it to reach this number. And now we're still relying on these models, these predictive models, which are a nightmare, especially the main one, the, uh, the IHME, I think it was out of England, where they were predicting something to the effect of 2 million deaths across the United States. So let's actually look at that model as far as what they said. That did not account for any nursing home deaths. Yeah. That was the public at large. It did not factor in nursing homes whatsoever. So they were predicting 2 million deaths with zero nursing home deaths. So now one of the most generous counts, we have 240,000 people dead from or with COVID-19 in America. Okay, so first off, you were off by a factor of 10 and you, oh, it was the social distancing. No, it wasn't. When you factor in at least 40% of those deaths were people in nursing homes, all right, what are we doing? So now you're talking about why are we even listening to these people still? Why, why are we doing it? And, and the other part of it, look, I'm not trying to belittle or dismiss anybody's death. They are all awful. Every, every death is a tragedy. No arguments. We're talking public policy here and what makes sense this doesn't. I mean, you're overcounting COVID deaths. There's, there's not like a big secret. We know that we are. The only question is by how much. Because if you have COVID, you're listed as a COVID death. There was a country that just started doing autopsies. What country was it? I'm not sure. Uh, Slovenia. Uh, it was a smaller country where they started actually doing autopsies of the COVID deaths. And what they found is that 
more often than not, the cause of death was not the COVID. The COVID was an underlying factor that caused the other death. Then the other, the other factors caused the death. I'm, I'm not, I feel like we're splitting hairs to say this, but it, it all comes back together of, all right, if somebody has stage four cancer and has a month to live and they get COVID, yeah, they're probably going to die. And it's probably going to die earlier than they otherwise would have. I, sure. What you fail to acknowledge, though, is by limiting businesses to this size, by, by completely destroying the way of life, by closing businesses and shuttering them, you're causing just as much, if not more harm, to these businesses. I, I can't speak for anybody but me. I, even with restaurants open, I have gone out to eat probably a third of what I did last year. And it's not a conscious decision to say like, oh, I'm not going to restaurants. It's just an inconvenience. I got four kids. It's now illegal for me to take my family of six to a restaurant in this state. Criminal. I, oh my God. I have six people, four of whom are under the age of 12. And I can't sit with, my wife is the same age as I am. We're both in our mid-30s. Like, we can't sit at a table together. Freaking hooligans. This is amazing. And everybody's going, well, you know, it's, that's the science. No, it's not. That's not science at all. This is insanity. At best, it's an overreach. At worst, it's a complete fabrication. This is a, just a nonsensical lie that we have doubled down on. There's a lot of things the science does support, okay? And it's, the science actually gets very interesting on a lot of these things. When we go through the PCR stuff in a minute, which we'll touch on before we dive into the interview... It's, a, it's fascinating to see what's really happening. The other side is masks. Okay, let's talk about what masks actually help with, if you don't mind me going on my tangent here. All right. A mask can reduce the spread of a droplet coming from your mouth to somebody else. So if you have COVID-19 and it spreads by a droplet, which is smaller, or excuse me, larger than about two microns, 1.5 microns, which is really big when you're talking about microbes and, and viruses. But if it's bigger than that, a cloth mask can stop it right where it is, right on the edge of your mouth. So assuming that's a good thing, which I'm not sure that it's great to have that just sitting on your mask and then you continue breathing on it over and over and over. And let's face it, none of us are sanitizing our masks every 20 minutes to two hours. Just a real happening. side note, that to interrupt your tangent. Go ahead. My uh, hygienist significant other has told me from the beginning, I wear one mask per patient. I discard the mask. I move on to a new mask. Of course you do, because that's what hygiene would require of right. you. Outside of that, this is nuts. So, all right, so it does do that. And if you are, if you have COVID-19 and you are either symptomatic or immediately pre-symptomatic, and I don't mean a week in advance, I mean a couple hours to a day before you really get symptoms, it can block that transmission of the droplet from me to you. Okay, if I'm wearing a mask, cool. No arguments. That is what the science actually says. And I've, I've looked at probably 30 studies that all have said the same exact thing. And I'm not arguing that. That's very true. The problem is the virus also spreads through aerosol transmission. This is what is known as airborne transmission. So instead of that, like 1.5 micron size, you're talking about what's the, the decimal place here? One, one thousand, one, oh God, that's a hard word to say. One, one thousandth of that size. It's going through your mask like nothing if it's on these aerosols. And uh, listen, I shouldn't say it's definitive. And out the side and out the bottom and right. out the top. And 99% odds, it is being spread through aerosols right now. There's far more data to support that than there is to support that masks are somehow stopping mass transmission. It's not. So this all makes sense when you look at it, because if you start looking around the world, you start to realize every place that has, there's countries, Spain, Italy, Germany, have mass compliance rates above 90%. 95, every time somebody walks outside, they have a mask on. 
You know what's happening? Same spread as everywhere else. Now you have Nordic countries that not only don't issue a, didn't issue a mandate on masks, actually came out and a few of these governments said there is no data. Don't wear a mask unless you, you don't feel well and you can't stay away from other people. Otherwise, stay away from people. And if you're on mass transit where you're all packed in together, go ahead and put a mask on. It's probably not a bad idea. They're not threatening fines. They're not threatening to arrest you. India, if you get caught not wearing a mask, you get fined 500 rubles. It's like a day's worth of... It's a day's worth of pay for like a cab driver in India if you get caught not wearing a mask. Okay, so they have high compliance. Their cases spiked all summer. And you're seeing the same thing now in Germany and France and in England. Again, I wish a cloth mask was the answer to stopping and solving COVID-19. It's not. It's like none of this data supports the conclusion. And now the CDC, which admittedly is an organization, I have lost all respect for anything they say with any credibility, not only is not acknowledging that it's a best case scenario, it's a 1% improvement in safety of you transmitting to other people. They turned around and doubled down on this stupidity and said, well, there's actually some evidence that it'll protect the wearer. None. There is no data to indicate that it will protect the wearer. That was never the claim. That was never the basis of wearing masks. That was never the idea. Now you have things like the Danish mask study that came out and said, nope, they're not doing anything. You have all these studies that show an N95 mask after two hours isn't making a big difference. A surgical mask doesn't make a big difference after about two. I'm sorry, N95 was like a day. A surgical mask doesn't do anything after about two hours. Like, but we think that me putting this little piece of cotton over my mouth and nose is saving a life? Like, th- this is not supported by the data, and that's okay, but let's acknowledge it. Remember when masks first came out and it was, if you can't maintain social distance and you're inside, put a mask on? What did that morph into? Masks. Don't leave your house without a mask on. Remember when we first started and it was, all right, listen, this virus is coming. We can't stop it. So what we need to do is make sure we don't overwhelm the health system. So what we need to do is flatten the curve. So that way it's not a huge spike, which then prevents other people from getting the care that they need because hospitals are overwhelmed. So we want to flatten the curve. Now, the idea was, if you looked at the numbers, the same number of people were going to get infected in either scenario. It was just a matter of spreading them out. By spreading it out over two, two to three weeks, we could avoid overwhelming the health system. What happened? That was in March. That was in March. 15 days to flatten the curve and, and slow down the spread. And then somehow that morphed into, we're going to lock everything down until this virus is gone. What? Well, wait, 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 we're going to shut down businesses. Well, we'll give them some funding. We'll give them some money. Oh, good. There's no ramifications from that. No stress at all. That'll work out fine. We'll just print more. That's never gone bad for any country ever before. All of these things have consequences, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So if you're going to go and berate somebody, belittle somebody, or demean somebody because they point out, hey, there's not a lot of data saying that the mask is having an impact. Oh, you COVID idiot. Hey. So dangerous dangerous right i got called dangerous because i encourage people to ask questions and do research i'm not telling you not to wear a mask let me be clear if you want to wear a mask god bless you even if you don't if a business requires it wear it i do think it's wrong that you're required to wear one inside of a private business and the idea like pennsylvania just passed one that said if you have people over everybody needs to have a mask on get out of here no No shot that is not allowed that's not how our government works that's not how the law works so anyways back to the original point here all of this science is very same with testing um don't want to go to that not yet same thing with treatment options. Now, it, it, let's look at the death counts again. So, all right, 240,000 people is our official death count, roughly, with COVID-19, right? Ballpark. 
Okay, now we all know that that includes any person that either had a positive COVID test, which is troubling in and of themselves because of how we do PCR tests, or presumed COVID counts as that too. And now they're going back and looking up old cases where somebody could have had COVID-19. Okay, that's fine. But let's acknowledge some realities in this then. Not one person who had COVID-19 died of anything else? Not one? Not one person who had COVID died COVID-19 died of medical mistakes? Because if so, that's the first time that's ever happened. Uh, fine, but we should also be honest about the numbers that we are discussing. And 40 nursing home deaths and everybody, you want to look at total mortality, and it's not that far off right now. This is comparable to a very bad flu season as of right now, or even a little bit better, but I don't want to compare it to the flu. I know it's different for the love of God. Don't jump down my throat. But what we are doing, particularly with... This isolation, human beings are not meant to be isolated. We are not designed that way. It's not how our brain functions. It's not how we achieve optimal health. We are meant to be in groups, families, societies, and communities. We are not meant to isolate. If you think like, oh, I'm the guy that wants to be alone in the woods, shut up. Honestly, maybe 1% of people are actually that way, but 40% of people think they're going to fit into that 1%. It's not. You are meant to be a part of something more than yourself, and that is when humans truly thrive. So knowing that this is happening, and now let's look at nursing homes even more. We're trying to protect nursing homes, which I completely agree with. We should have done a better job of it early on, and it would have changed the entire trajectory of what happened if we had done a better job protecting nursing homes early on. But now you're getting into other problems, which is, number one, neglect inside the nursing homes because people don't want to work in there anymore because they are dangerous. No arguments. But the other thing is, In a nursing home setting, failure to thrive is a very real problem, meaning if somebody doesn't have good social interaction, if somebody is not engaged with family or with other residents of the nursing facility or with staff and have regular engagement, if they are left in isolation and left alone, they die. This is not something that's new. We've known this for years. The data is there, and we can study it whenever we want. It's there. People that are not socially involved have worse outcomes than people who are, especially in nursing homes. Ask any funeral director, what's it like around Christmas? They're busy because it's just this reminder of how lonely some people are and they give up. This is not my opinion. There is data behind every one of this that is very easily accessible. We are ignoring all of these other things, all in the name of stop COVID. And we're doing things that are having no impact on the spread of COVID. And then anybody that dares point this out is name called and belittled that I'm not telling you to go protest in the street or spit on a cop or anything else. Don't, but we should be able to discuss this stuff freely without anybody being shouted down. If you haven't read a single scientific study, don't tell somebody else they're wrong. Go look it up and find out. It's very interesting what you see. Here's the reality. I'm probably not 100% right. Neither are you. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but if I'm not allowed to express my opinion, how are we ever going to learn the truth? If the people who tend to think like me aren't allowed to speak, how are we ever going to get to the truth of the matter? If I shout you down and tell you, don't you dare say that masks work because there's no data to indicate it. That's false. There is some data to indicate masks work in the exact manner I just said. So there are times when a mask is very appropriate and I would argue is even necessary. But we're not going to get anywhere if we keep shouting each other down and not listening. Learn, exchange ideas and grow. And yes, when the government is wrong, call them out. I don't care how noble your motives are. If what you're doing is causing harm and having no measurable good, 
I'm going to speak out against it because I think it's insanity that we don't care about these people that are dying from addiction, that are dying from suicides, that are dying from their like, poverty has bad health consequences. This isn't new information. And we are going to send millions of people around the world into poverty over the next 24 months. We are going to cause so many untold deaths over the next 24 months. And all anybody can say is wear a mask. That's really wear a mask. Show me where it worked and then explain to me what that one region did differently than everywhere else in the world that wore masks and nothing happened. It followed the same pattern as everywhere else. Yeah. That's all I got. So, and like I said, obviously this will help piggyback into our interview because now we have all this going on in the backdrop of what we are unsure about the, the, the sensitivity, if you will, of the tests themselves. Are we getting a large amount of false positives? Yes. Or, or. <laughs> Sorry, large amount is too vague of a term. We're getting some. How's that? We are getting some. And like I said, I've seen varying degrees. Um, and I think that there is varying degrees, even depending on which kit people are using and which states are using different kit. Like there's, there's a lot of vari- variables going on, um, which we cover in the interview here. Um, but we don't know how to compare the two because the information we're getting is just black or white, yes or no, positive or negative, when the test result is more than a positive negative result. Um, and I think this is the main point of the whole interview and why I wanted to have Mr. McKernan on is when he talks about this live dead virus issue with the, the testing. So the virus can show up into your system and can be in your system for upwards of 75, 90 days but you're only really infectious or contagious for about three to five of those days. Um, If you're infectious and contagious, then you should isolate and you should quarantine and maybe wear a mask if you're out in public, but really you should probably stay home. Right. Everybody else should go about their business, but we're not, we're, we're quarantining everybody. Even the people who are past the infectious and contagious stage who are in this cold stage, which is like that they, they term it where the virus is no longer, viable to infect anybody else and you're not it's not going to create any symptom usually you're symptomatic during that first three to five days so now you have we're testing all these people whether or not we don't know because we're not getting full spectrum of the data from the positive negative test there's this underlying you know spectrum of results that we should be able to report along with this positive test that allow us to know whether or not the virus is contagious and infectious or not And if we're testing people and we're getting positive tests past this infection mark, this, this, this period where the, 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 the virus is not, uh, uh, contagious or infectious, then we have a bunch of people who are out there thinking that they're contagious and infectious, isolating under those assumptions. And then we're contact tracing a bunch of their friends and family and getting the same results. And we're doing it over and over again. So now we got this pyramid cascading effect of these tests where we don't know whether or not they're, they're, they're cold or not, whether or not these, these viruses actually should be reported as positive tests or not. And we, we, we're, we're testing everybody. And the, the way out of it seems to be more testing, which seems like we're just doubling down on a, on a, on a strategy that's guarantee us to have more cases. Yep. And look, the, the PCR test is a great test. It is a marvel of modern medical technology that we are able to do what we are able to do with a PCR test. The problem, as it normally is, is not with the tool, it's with the user. And the user in this case is us. And the analogy that, uh, that Mr. McKernan uses is 
It's like a Richter scale. It's a, it's not meant to be a yes, no. Like a Richter scale, the way it measures seismic activity is it's meant to pick up all seismic activity and then you're supposed to figure out, okay, anything at this level is serious, anything at this level is fine, anything above here is very concerning. So what we've done is we've basically taken this thing and turned it into any activity on a Richter scale is an earthquake. So now we're going to make public policy decisions based on that. So, all right, upstate New York, I know you you've, you know common sense-wise have not had an earthquake in the last 40 years. Plus, I don't actually know the last time we had an earthquake, but I'm 36 and it hasn't happened in my life. So that being said, you're looking at seismic activity. And of course, we're going to have some. But imagine if we then passed laws and rules that said you have to outfit every building in this area to be earthquake proof because look at all of your positive seismic activity. And some people went, but that's not what that means. Like, yeah, it is. Seismic activity is earthquakes. Well, I mean, yeah, but it's not exactly. Well, no, let's go. Whatever it takes. Let's spend the money. We'll go print more. You have to pay more. We need more laws, more rules. And if you don't do it, then we're going to shut down your business. I mean, that's insanity. But here we are. I'm going to ask you this. If you haven't looked into this whatsoever, for anybody listening, do you think that's not what we're currently doing? Are you under the impression that a PCR test was meant to be just a simple yes-no analysis to determine if you have... It's not a pregnancy test, all right? Pregnancy is you are or you are not. What the right. PCR... And, t- and I was going to say, and these are different than the, the, the newer rapid test, too, which these ones, the new rapid test, basically, they're, they're more likely to give you a false negative because they're not as sensitive, right. but they're checking for a substantial viral load, right? So that if you have a lot of the virus... It's a good way of saying, hey, you're probably sick, right? So these are the tests that are actually telling people whether or not they're, they're sick or could be sick. Listen, if you want to be safe, you know, take them a couple of days apart, these rapid tests, and you can kind of get an idea. Um, uh, but these are, are not the PCR tests. These are these tests that are coming back, uh, I think, in like 15, 20 minutes or something. Um, yeah. Um, I haven't had any of these tests, so I haven't been experienced uh, any of these. So, But you're uh, right, and this is something else that we'll cover in the interview was the idea that you only do this once is also insanity because this is the same thing of you're trying to figure out the the reason is not yay or nay. I have some version of COVID-19, whether it's dormant alive or whatever else. That's really not the question we want answered. The question I want answered is, am I able to spread COVID-19 to somebody else? That's what I need to know. If I have a dormant virus in my system, I don't care because I can't spread that. It's not going to affect me. It's not going to harm me. What I need to know is, can I spread it to somebody else? And what we're testing for is, do I have any in me? And it's the wrong question to be asking. And it's a question that is guaranteed to lead to a higher rate of false positives. How high is the question? And depending on how high you're running these tests, and ultimately the answer is so simple and easy that it's mind-boggling here we are, however many months later, and we're still not doing it. And the information is still there. I know. And it's I all mean, it would be is literally adding a column to an Excel spreadsheet of what was the cycle threshold? What level did you find this at? Because if you found it at 20 cycles, this person is probably contagious and should certainly isolate. If you found it at 42, this is nothing. If you didn't find it at 40 cycles, but you found it at 42 cycles, that ain't real. Sorry. Nothing. That is false. And... This is the thing that you have to understand about the PCR test if you're going to engage with anybody or have the conversation is, listen, I I make this point often, but I'm going to make it again just because I think it bears repeating. We live in a world where we have access to so much data and so much information. 
You can go and see these tests. You can get the user manuals. You can look at the warning labels on masks that simply say not meant to stop COVID-19. Like all of this stuff is there. And all you have to do is look at it and read it and research it. Take an hour, skip one episode of The Office or whatever you're watching and go read one of these and you will be amazed at what you learn. And even if you don't agree, that's fine. But at least you can engage with this without it reverting to name calling and just outright dismissal of another person's point of view. I get people are afraid. I'm afraid. Like, listen, I don't want to get COVID. I don't want to pass it to anybody. But that doesn't mean I'm going to just blanketly say, okay, everything's bad. I'm also afraid genuinely of what we are going to end up with as a world from this, of how many people in other countries, especially third world countries, will die as a result of what we have done over the last nine months. Maybe that doesn't bother you. God love you. It does. It bothers me. And then the PCR test is a big side of this, of such an easy fix. You see the little number where it says found? Good. Right next to that should be another column that says cycle threshold, and it should be somewhere between 17, eh, 20 is probably the bare minimum, and 40. And if that number is anywhere north of 32, you can dismiss it because you're not positive. It's an easy fix. Why are we not doing this? It's inconvenient. It's not even inconvenient. It's one well, column. Well, it's inconvenient to the narrative, not, not inconvenient to the actual oh user. So, all right. So let's bring on the interview. So we did this interview on Thursday. Yeah. Thursday. Um, again, we kind of talk about PCR testing. We kind of go a little bit about uh, Mr. Curtin's background. Again, he used to work for the Human Genome, Genome Project, uh, one of the, the most influential labs of that project. Uh, he did millions of PCR tests. So... Um, without further ado, let me uh, bring on uh, our guest interview, Kevin McKernan. And CSO, CSO of Medical Genomics, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin McKernan. Mr. McKernan, thank you for joining the show. Um, I brought you on to talk PCR uh testing can you first give the audience uh, maybe uh why you're an expert in pcr what are your some of your professional experiences and what uh why should why should we listen to what you you're going to tell us okay certainly so um my background as, as you mentioned i i managed the um i was a team leader of development uh for and for research and development at uh, whitehead institute at mit center for genome research this is a group that did the um managed the human genome project at least one of the one of the many labs there's about five labs internationally that were that were serious contributors to the project so we built a very large um pipeline that that uh Purified E. coli clones and did a, a very Sanger sequencing, which which follows a very similar path as PCR. It amplifies, uh, although it's not an exponential amplification, it's a linear amplification. It uses all the same equipment, all the same liquid handling, and has just a slightly different readout than quantitative PCR. And in many ways, it's more complicated. Uh, but this system uh, was a robotic pipeline that's handled like twenty to forty million reactions a year. Uh, which is is what we're seeing some of these labs have to scale up to uh, in in many places right now. They're they're um, some of the labs I, I, I'm seeing are reporting you know five they're crossing the five million test mark at the moment. So uh, so that was my experience on the genome project. I then went and started Agincourt Biosciences, which is a, did uh, made DNA purification kits for virus isolation, actually HIV and a variety of other um, virus isolations. So I'm familiar with the DNA purification side that's required to capture these viruses. Uh, that company was eventually acquired by Beckman Coulter, uh, who's in the space uh, and well-known in the space. And uh, we built a DNA sequencer out of that company that got spun out in that acquisition. And that was a sequencer that came to market, which is known as a solid sequencer. Also used a lot of PCR. It used a lot of emulsion PCR. 
uh, and did billions of them in parallel. Um, so I'm very familiar with optimizing these reactions in, 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 for different targets, whether it be RNA or DNA. Currently, uh, we're, we are a testing company, but we're not testing COVID patients. We're testing the microbial burden that's on cannabis flowers because this is an inhaled product, uh, and inhaled products have higher stringency. Um, you can't have any fungal spores or any uh, bacteria. Um, the, the, we're not screening for any viruses at the moment, although we do have kits that screen for viruses for the growers. They're just not regulated as a mandatory test. They're, the things growers like to look for so the plants don't get sick. Um, so we have experience testing um, many of these different, whether they be viral, fungal, or bacteria. And we have an experience doing them in multiple different matrices, whether they be from blood, from serum, from sputum, or from, from cannabis flowers. Uh, so I have experience with the PCR field across the gamut. Uh, and I have actually played with this virus, and we have made a kit that amplifies this virus off of cannabis. So I'm, I have some familiarity with the primers and probes that are being used. Okay, so let's start right at the beginning of PCR. What does it stand for? What is it? Uh, what should we know about it uh, for, for us non-scientists? So piece for polymerase chain reaction, uh, it's invented by Kerry Mollis in California, and uh, it is a method where you can utilize an enzyme called the polymerase to copy uh, a region of DNA that is marked by two what are known as primers. These primers have to have they're usually twenty to thirty letters long, and they usually have to they have to flank you know, the target that you want to amplify. And they're generally highly specific. In the case of COVID, there's some questions as to how specific they are, and we'll touch on that. But uh, they amplify usually a very short segment. Most quantitative PCR assays are looking at 100 to 200 bases, and they're oftentimes targeting multiple regions of the viral genome at once uh, for, um, for backup purposes, just so there's redundancy in, in, in the process of PCR. So this can amplify a single molecule into billions of molecules. Uh, and every single cycle that occurs in PCR, you roughly get a doubling of the amount of content. So when you're hearing people talk about CQ values, the, this is the point at which the signal in PCR passes a particular threshold, and it can range from 1 to 45, um, and you'll hear a lot of discussion about that. Uh, you never see things coming up at 1. It's usually coming up around 10 and when it's really concentrated. When it comes up way out at 35 or 37, you're getting down to 50 to 100 molecules in your target, and it's very, very dilute. But you can get an estimate of how much DNA you had in, in there by counting the CQs, and every CQ is about a doubling. So it's really important that this uh, CQ scale is in the discussion. This is literally like the Richter scale for for um, uh, uh, for earthquakes. It's a log scale. It's a log two scale. So every single numeric there is a doubling, and that those add up very quickly. When you when you span 3.3 CQs, you get a 10x effect. So when you see people talking about 30 CQs versus like 36, you're talking about a hundredfold difference in viral load. Uh, and that's oftentimes missed, I think, in some of the discussions when people are talking about 35 versus 34. Uh, so it's an important assay. It's a very valuable assay, but I do think it's getting perhaps misused uh, in the public setting. I think this assay is very valuable in a hospital is being very dialed, in, dialed to a very sensitive nature when you're trying to sort out which patient should be in the COVID ward and which one shouldn't. It can be horribly abused in a public setting uh, when you're trying to scan the entire population and you're going across people that are non-symptomatic or asymptomatics. And, and, um, yeah, go ahead. So, I, so I guess it's not a black and white, this is a positive test, this is a negative test. And that, that's kind of what we've been, you know, we just get these raw numbers every day. It's like, this is how many cases we have. This is how many cases we have. But 
I, it sounds like there's more nuance to that and whether or not there should be there's just a, lot, a black and white. There's a lot more nuance, and, and some would argue there's fraud and that we're calling cases. Uh, you, in medical terms, cases are not just a test. You need to have symptoms, and you need to usually have a physician review the case and the complexity of everything else that's going on with the patient. Calling cases off of just a blind PCR test, I think in 2019, would have been deemed medical fraud. Uh, so the fact that we're doing this as a public health um, public health basis needs to change. Uh, and rightfully, many places are overturning these. Unfortunately, it's leading a lot of public distrust in PCR. PCR as a tool is extraordinarily valuable. The way people are using it is negligent. Uh, Portugal just reversed this. Uh, so I hope a few other jurisdictions do. I'm a little um, nervous about the wholesale throwing it, you know, the baby out in the bathwater, which I think is going to happen in some places. They're going to get so tired of PCR being abused like this that they're just never going to trust it again. When in fact, the, the, the hospitals actually do need this information. Yeah, so it sounds like the test is actually a good test if it's actually just implemented correctly. It's an extraordinarily valuable test. One of the most valuable tests we have at our fingertips right now. It's just, it's just the communication of what the data means is right now, I think, a public disaster. Here. Um, around the world, I know you're talking about higher cycle thresholds. We hear stories about uh, different regions are testing at 35 cycles. I've heard as high as 45 cycles. Do you have any idea as far as different regions or different countries? As where is the standard that these places are testing to? So there's um, two dimensions to that question. Um, you will see a lot of kits mentioned they're testing out to 45. Uh, that does not mean they're calling samples at 44. Um, that means that they're running their camera all the way out to 45 cycles so that they have vision out there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're calling people that close to the end of the detection event. Um, sure. So that gets confused a little bit in the news. Um, however, that, that shouldn't be taken for granted. When you see people running out to 45, that is kind of late for PCR. So tests that need to be run that long, it's usually a red flag. You should look in, pull out the test detail information. You can find a lot of this, at least in the States, um, on the FDA site. If you just Google the name of the test that's being run on you and EUA, the FDA documents will come up. And the first thing they'll show you is, is that, okay, they did run this test out to 45 or 40 cycles to show that when you add water to this, you don't get any signal. So that's actually a bragging right. If you can run your, your kit all the way out to 45 and you don't see any signal on water samples, you have a really clean test that doesn't have any background. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of manufacturers will put that in there saying, look, we were in ours, ours, ours all the way to 50 and it's clean. And that's actually quite impressive. However, that's not necessarily where people are calling the samples. And that is important to ask. Um, a second bit of information that is, I, I think, getting misconstrued in the news is in the EUA documents, they will have something called a limit of detection, which is when the manufacturer takes the test and they serially dilute the target all the way down as far as they can detect it, and then they, they stop it where they find 95% detection rates, and they call that as their limit of detection. It's usually around 37, for, but this is that's a generalization. I don't want to apply that number for all the kits that are in the field. You really do have to look up which kit's getting run, unfortunately, to know where its limit of detection is. If people are calling beyond the limit of detection, and I've seen a few labs that have been doing that, that is, um, that, that's, not that, that's not valid data. You can't, you can't accurately call things beyond your limit of detection. And some, some accidents are happening where I think people are, they're seeing the manufacturing documents saying, this thing uh, we tested, it's clean out to 40, so they run it out to 40, and if they see any signal, they call it positive. How frequently that's happening, I can't actually assess. I thought it was happening all the time. I've dug into more labs, uh, and some labs are actually quite aware of this, and they're not. They're, they're calling it below 35. I've seen others uh, clearly calling after the limit of detection of the test that they're using. So um, that needs to be sharpened up a little bit. 
but the limit of detection is actually a really important feature. That tells you when not to call. Now, that is speaking about the assay and its sensitivity with naked RNA being put into the reaction. Um, there is a separate issue here that I think is causing more confusion, which is that how much of that RNA is actually viable? Uh, so the fact that you can pick up 50 copies of RNA doesn't mean that you can discern uh, asymptomatic from symptomatic people. And in fact, there's a very large window with PCR where people are asymptomatic and not infectious, but still detectable. Uh, and that's where I think the, 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 the measuring these caseloads is, is, is horrendously destroying the economy because the vast majority of time a patient spends with COVID or with SARS-CoV-2 in their system, they are not infectious. In fact, there's a very narrow, maybe two to seven day window where they're infectious. And there could be as far as 90 days upon which they are detectable with qPCR and they're not infectious. So under those circumstances, uh, I mean, there's a paper I encourage people to look up called Liotti, L-I-O-T-T-I. That's one that shows people getting detected 77 days later with an with a infectious window of seven days. So that's a, that's a, that's a 10 to 1 ratio of, of you being detectable but not infectious. So 9 out of 10 of those tests are going to come back quarantining people that shouldn't be. Um, I, I think a, a more sensible test for public health is something that's less sensitive, that only picks up when your viral load is extraordinarily high and you're infectious. These could either be rapid antigen tests or these could be some of these home PCR tests that are 100-fold less sensitive, so they only pick up the really high cases. Uh, and in those cases, you can do them very frequently. I think the big issue we have with PCR right now, having such a broad detection window on asymptomatics, is that they run them once, and that one number at one point in time doesn't give you enough information to know whether the viral load is going up or going down in your system. And if it's going down, you're on the clearance side of the disease. And if it's going up, you need to hunker down. Uh, we don't have that information right now because the PCR process isn't in your home. It has to be sent out to labs. And by the time you get the second test, it doesn't matter. It's three days later, four days later. And by the time they contact trace, it's all meaningless data because it takes them a week to figure out who you're in contact with and get them retested. The home testing thing, I think, is really the win because it's, it, it affords privacy and it gives you information that's much more actionable and I think more in line with what you could call a medical case. It, you really shouldn't be quarantining people that are asymptomatic and calling them cases. That is, that is unethical. Uh, and that's what's going on in setting a lot of these policies in the States. So let me just ask you, talk about asymptomatic and people that are asymptomatic quarantining. Now, we hear a lot about asymptomatic spread. How does this affect or impact what we should be doing with regards to PCR testing? Yeah, that's a, that's a complicated topic. I, I see sure. work. There's a lot of people who doubt asymptomatic spread because it's so hard to measure, um, right? It's, it's, you have to be tracking people longitudinally to really pick it up, um, to know that, hey, I, I was testing this patient for no particular good reason, uh, doing medical tests on them to find that they were asymptomatic, and then suddenly they got symptomatic. You know, so, so setting up studies like that is, is, are very tricky. Um, I know of some modelers as well in the Panda group that have studied very closely this effect, and they, you know, they seem to be, um, I, have to, I have to connect you to his name maybe on a link after this, but uh, you know, the modeling he's done seems to imply there is some pre-symptomatic uh, spread that's going on, and mostly through super spreaders, and there's not much we can do about it. Uh, you know, if, 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 if pre-symptomatic is the, if that's where the majority of the spread actually is, we're never going to catch this unless we're testing everybody all the time. And that's completely unreasonable. And we're not going to lock down society waiting for this, uh, you know, play this game of whack-a-mole. It's, it's, it's unplayable. So, um, 
that's that's an open debate, and I'm not the best authority to, to resolve the asymptomatic spread question, but it, it's plausible that it's happening, and um, it's certainly plausible that we will see it with PCR. Um, this is a comparison. If we were to use PCR testing for, say, the seasonal flu, and we, we would a PCR test pick up the flu if that was what we were searching for? Yes. It, it okay, would. and if we did that to the levels we're doing it now, what would the result be? Uh, we all be hunkered down in in the forest with shotguns and canned food. Uh, so. <laughs> Say that like it's a bad idea. I mean, come on. No, no. I just, I just like it, it, this. I think this is a large effect because we have the PCR pipelines chasing this at such high. I mean, we're a hundredfold higher testing volumes now than we were in the spring. So the caseloads that you're seeing escalate now are are both a function of seasonality of the disease and a hundredfold more testing frequency. Uh, so we don't test for flu. And one thing that's really challenging about comparing COVID and flu. Uh, you know, Fauci put out a, a CFR on flu at 0.1% in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, a lot of people, and I've made this mistake myself, of assuming that that's the IFR flu because we don't actually test asymptomatic people for flu. So there isn't a real good understanding of how much asymptomatic flu there is. I've seen a few papers that imply it could be as, it could it could move the needle by a factor of two. There could be just as many asymptomatics as symptomatics in flu. But we're not doing this massive scale testing on flu for us to ever pick that up. Uh, so we don't have good precision on the amount of asymptomatic flu that's out there. So a lot of people will take Fauci's 0.1% number and just call it an IFR because we don't have data to really uh, assess the CFR. Um, the difference between case and infectious fatality is, you know, symptomatic, you know, symptoms basically. Um, so this is um, that number, that 0.1 will often get compared to John Ioannidis's work um, that's now up on the, the WHO's website, but this is out of Stanford and he tried to measure this stuff with antibodies and came out with numbers in the 0.2 to 0.3 range. I've seen people um, come through his paper and discount it even further down to 0.15, but it's, it's maybe two to three X the flu season. Uh, when you look, when you, if, if you compare them on the numbers we have, but the numbers we have aren't apples to apples numbers. Sure. That's the biggest problem. Flu isn't tracked the way that we track uh, uh, C19. Flu is at the CDC, even they'll tell you that they kind of model it, which we all know those are dirty words. Um, and, and for a while they were lumping flu and pneumonia together. And so it's really hard to disambiguate um, what those, you know, how much of that is actually influenza A, influenza B, how much are other respiratory viruses. So the, the flu data is unfortunately somewhat dirty and probably undercounted. And the COVID numbers are probably overcounted because everything is getting bucketed as COVID. There is, um, there's no hospital liability for COVID. So the first thing hospitals do is they test for COVID. And if it's positive, I doubt they go and test for flu because that would move them into a nosocomial liability as opposed to a no liability patient. Uh, the, the hospitals have higher liability for nosocomial infections. If it's, if it's deemed to be uh, acquired at the hospital, there's, there's different reimbursement artifacts uh, that occur. So the counting of these two things is not apples to apples, to, to apples, it's apples to oranges. And so when you have, you get these internet debates about whether it's, you know, more or less the flu, it's um, somewhat futile. Um, at least for the kids, we, I think we've got good numbers that, that, C-19 is actually less harmful for the kids than it is for the flu, yet the kids seem to be bearing the massive brunt of this lockdown uh, in terms of their school getting shut down, face masks everywhere, uh, their lives getting turned upside down when they're not the ones at risk. We're literally torturing the youth uh, to save the old here. So, and but, but, uh, This whole thing makes me think that we're just building this gigantic testing industrial complex where we're going to, especially if, you're, if what you're talking about is, is 
is prevalent where they're they're testing people or these viral loads are past their peak and they're not contagious and then we have all this contact tracing backing them up and testing more people that might have the same scenario and then we're contacting all those people and contacting all their friends and family and then we're building up this gigantic testing system that i don't know how we're getting out of it is there a way out of it uh, it's a good question. So to put it in perspective, Thermo, who's one of the larger reagent providers in the country, did $2 billion in revenue and COVID testing uh, reagents in the last quarter. Uh, LabCorp hit close to a billion. Quest hit close to a billion. Uh, those are just three off the top of my head that are large players in the space. Um, multiply that globally, and yeah, it's, it's a... It is a multi-billion dollar um, market now, and whenever there's that much money, even in a quarterly basis, there will be lobbying efforts to make testing more prevalent in more places. I've heard Ticketmasters talking about, you know, they want to have vaccine checks if you ever open up the music industry again. Uh, we're going to have testing checks like that, I think, in any large sports gathering. I don't, I don't view that future as making any sense, uh, mainly because these once these viruses become endemic, uh, which is where this will end up if we're not already there. Uh, it is going to ebb and flow every single year. And if our reaction to something like this is to, is to freak out and test everybody and lock people down and change the and essentially plan the economy to some ridiculous degree, we won't have an economy. Uh, the, the, the economic harm of that type of intervention, I think, is going to be far worse than where this where this. Um, uh, viral infection is going to go. If you keep an eye on the IFR, it has been dropping since day one. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, we, we massively underestimated the amount of asymptomatic spread. Uh, we also underestimated uh, its, well, we overestimated its novelty. We thought this thing was, was so new, it was going to rifle through the population and, and kill everybody. And it turned out it had a lot of ancestors that meant a lot more people were, had some partial immunity to it and it didn't spread the way that we thought. Uh, and then we have, um, you've seen it drop over time as we've gotten better understanding of this, but we also have better treatments now. We have hydroxychloroquine, we have I wouldn't even call remdesivir a good treatment, even though it's standard of care. But we have ivermectin is much better. Um, does you know dexamethasone? There's uh, vitamin D. There's all of these things that are showing massive benefits uh, for this. And we know the age demographic now um, that's most at risk, which we didn't know early on. So we have all of these bits of information to work with that improve the IFR over time. So that IFR is going to drop. Uh, and get down to flu levels, uh, without a doubt, I think, in the next year. It's just now elevated because we don't know what we're doing, uh, and uh, it's soon to get better. So, I, I uh, yeah, I, I hope it doesn't go that way, and I don't know how to unwind that other than to get people um, who are negatively impacted by this, by having their businesses and everything else shut down, to be speaking up to the people who are writing these laws. I don't think the people who are writing these laws understand them. Uh, this concept of a CQ is, it's not even a public bit of information and it should be that those, instead of putting positivity up, we should be putting the average CQ levels up uh, on, on these testing sites so we can see whether this is seasonality or not. Um, you know, we, we could see that the CQ levels on these things go get demonstrate lower viral loads. In other words, the numbers get bigger, but it's an inverse scale. Uh, they could be getting lower in that regard yet the positivity could be going up. And one, and one thing that would explain that is all the students that are getting tested. If you look at the student testing rates, they seem to be, um, the positivity on those is actually much lower than the average rate in Boston. It's probably about 10 to 100 fold lower than the positivity we have currently in Boston because the students um, are spreading this just as readily, but they're clearing it much faster and they probably have lower viral loads, right? So we don't have, like the most important window on this is being omitted from the public record. And I think that's what needs to get public to help people better manage the epidemic is to know, are the viral loads going up or down in, in context of the positivity? If you just measure positivity, you're, 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 you're blind. You're looking at a one-dimensional axis. You, you, need, you need at least two. 
So if I can borrow your analogy of this is the PCR test compared to the Richter scale when we're measuring earthquakes. We have it set right now that whether you're talking about a 0.2 or a 7, it's going to say, yes, you have an earthquake and we're making public policy decisions. Yes. This would be akin to like, I don't even know a good place, but upstate New York saying, well, we've got to make everything earthquake proof because look at all the positive readings we're getting on the Richter scale. Yes, it's, it's, it just creates widespread panic. Uh, and that's actually a very great band, by the way, but I, I don't mean to <laughs> put them in this context, but yeah, uh, I, I think that's what's, that's what's happening. Uh, is they're overreacting because they see the positivity go up when the positivity number without any context of what the average CQ is in that, in that, in that cohort is, is somewhat meaningless. Uh, I would be surprised. I've heard from other people. I've not been able to verify this because I'm getting all secondhand, but I've heard the average CQ in Massachusetts, like 85 to 90% of the people are over a CQ of 30. Um, I've even heard some numbers suggesting the average is like 36. So that's getting really close to the limit of detection. And it's probably highly unlikely if any of those things are viable. So the, the, a really good paper to, to read on this, uh, and it actually came up in the Portugal study. The Portugal court case that reversed this referred to a paper by, by a gentleman by the name of Jaffar, J-A-A-F-A-R. And it's out of DDA Rialt's lab. And what they did is they took their assay and they measured at what point the CQ stopped becoming infectious by, by plating the patient's viral loads onto, onto Vero cells. And these, are, these are monkey kidney cells. And when you, when you plate the sample on there, you can see how many viruses are actually infectious in cell culture versus what your CQ value is. And when they do that, they get to numbers like 30, 33 or 35, that after that, nothing's infectious. So you shouldn't be calling people cases if they're not infectious. Um, particularly when it comes to quarantine. That, now, that, that particular cutoff, people have said, hey, let's put that across the globe. And I think that's a bit dangerous because some tests, have, that number needs to be set. It could be set upwards to, you know, 37 or 30 or 30 in other, in other kits. And those are large deviations. There's, they're orders of magnitude deviations. So I, I, I don't think saying 35 for all kits is right. You have to really, each kit probably has to go through a calibration curve like that to know where their cutoff is for in, infectability. Uh, and that would sharply... Uh, and greatly reduce the number of people that are getting falsely quarantined, falsely contact traced. And the contact tracing, I think, is really important, as you brought up, because that's a chain reaction of more tests. And for every everyone that comes positive out of your contact map, their contact map explodes. It becomes six degrees. Before you know, Kevin Bacon's getting tested every time, you know, every 10 minutes. <laughs> so, so, so. Obviously, our, you know, I'm going to use her, we're in Onondaga County, we have our own uh, county uh, Department of Health, and I'm sure that they are in constant contact with our uh, county executive and our leaders trying to make these decisions. If you had their ear, and you could have 10 minutes with them, or a couple minutes, and be like, what, what would you tell them, what would you give them to, hey, go down this path, go down this road, this is what you need to be looking at, or this is what you need to be reporting to your community to better help the community understand what's going on? Put the CQs public. I think that's the most important thing to not have those public. I think they're, they're going to expose themselves to liability. There are, there are lots of discussions about class action lawsuits that are going to start to coalesce around this. They're already happening in Europe to go after the folks who are locking down and destroying businesses. There's, there's clear and direct economic harm that are tied to this. Uh, and it's being done in a way where no one has transparency on what numbers are being used to make these decisions. So they've got to put those things public just as a transparency measure. Um, and if they can put them public, 
Uh, it's not hard to do this. This data, they're already putting the positivity data public. So you just have to have your Perl script or your Excel sheet move one column over and get the CQ information, sum that up and put it public. People can then get a better sense of whether the CQs are going up or down and whether they need to really worry about this. I think that's step one. Step two, I think they do need to scrutinize the tests that are being utilized in their state to know where the limits of detection are and to make sure nobody is calling after those things and then have a, a second discussion on whether the, the calling point is, is accurate. If some people are setting them at 35 and we think that's still capturing a lot of asymptomatics, maybe there should be discussion to move it to 33 or, or to 31. Again, if you put all the CQs public, then I think a lot of people on Twitter will parse this stuff and get a better understanding of CQ per state. Uh, and you will get a much better resolution on the viral flux that's going through the communities. That will help make better decisions, uh, decisions that have less liability. Uh, do you think the states and whatever departments of health are tracking the CQ values now and just not publicizing them or no? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, they have... Um, there is some information in the COVID, uh, like the emergency or... Um, uh, what is it? I'm fumbling this, but there's there's some legislation for this uh, for this pandemic that basically is incentivizing the labs to report the results. There's there's fines involved if, if CLIA labs don't report their COVID testing. I don't know if that probably has to be anonymized. The patient names aren't involved in any of this, and they're probably reporting their positivity number. I hope they can also accept the CQ information and take it, you know, whether it gets put public through the Department of Health, it's always good to have them auditing matters just so there's an unbiased party there looking at what the labs are doing, but the labs themselves could readily populate this information on their websites if they, if they chose. Um, but I would encourage the Department of Health, if, if they're not collecting it now, to try and get their hands on it just so they have another bearing. It's a really important measurement because it's a log scale and it's very information rich. Uh, and the other, the other bit of information I'd ask them to track is most of these tests are running more than one um, amplicon. They're you're usually running something like in the N2 region of the virus and sometimes in the, uh, the S protein of the virus. So by targeting two different regions of the virus, they should... They, they, they may be getting different CQ values. They will be getting different CQ values for both of those amplicons, and they should track both of them because the virus is known to have much higher RNA expression on the three prime end of the virus than it is on the five prime end of the virus. This is a an artifact that this um, virus, when it gets into your cell, it makes subgenomic RNA, and this subgenomic RNA doesn't get packaged into virions. So the virions just have the whole genome that's like 30,000 letters long, but inside the cell, there's left behind these fragments, but lots of copies of them, more copies of them than the actual packaged virus. Uh, so if you put your primers in the region of the genome that, that get subgenomic RNA and full-length RNA, you get much higher readings than you do when you put them in other places of the genome. Now, measuring the ratio of those may give us some information that we don't have right now, that, oh, okay, we have... We have subgenomic RNA levels going off the charts, uh, and we don't see that on packaged virus. We may be able to ascertain some live dead information by tracking the different amplicon CQs very carefully. This is not, um, uh, you know, conspiracy theory here. There's actually several papers where one is named Wolfel, W-O-L-F-E-L, where they go and track the, the asymptomatic to symptomatic ratio of patients by tracking the two different ends of the virus's genome. When they look at the very three prime end, they get one signal. When they look at the five prime end, they get another. And that gives them uh, information on how infectious these patients are. Uh, so I, I, 
if they're going to collect the CQ data, it'd be great for them to collect it on an Amplicon per Amplicon basis, which means they got to, you know, usually track two or three more um, columns in the spreadsheet as opposed to one. But don't average them together. Keep them, this, you know, individual and separate so that the, the public, there's, there's a bunch of great analysts on Twitter right now that are combing through all this data, drawing beautiful graphs and really informing on the pandemic. And you can enable that whole swarm of cyber hornets, if you will, to attack this problem and provide us more clarity. And I think even DeSantis is hiring some of them. So this is, this is a really productive, uh, uh, productive path. So let me just, it sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly, PCR tests should be giving us incredibly valuable data that is easy enough to add on. There's no, it's not like it's overly complicated, overly burdensome. So it begs the question, there's people like you, there's experts in this field that have been saying this for weeks, if not months. Why are we not doing this? Why are we not providing or collecting that data and using it? I... I don't know. It's, it's happening globally. I used to think, right. that, okay, um, it's heavily politicized, so I thought maybe November this will pass. So I, I guess November didn't really pass, so we're still in, in sort of electoral purgatory, if you will. Um, but we're, you know, we're seeing it happen in, in, in other jurisdictions outside the United States as well. So um, I'm very confused on, if, you know, what's the motivation? This doesn't help any politician on a local level to have their economy destroyed. They're going to have all types of consequences for tax base imploding and everything else. Um, so what's, why are they not attentive to this? And it, it could just be that fear of this virus has infected people to such a, such a degree that they're, they're not being rational. When you're, when you're, when you're fearful like this, you panic and, and you, you make really poor decisions when you're, if you don't step back and actually look at the data, this is not that harmful of a disease. Yes, people have died. It's unfortunate, but the excess mortality is nothing as staggering as what was predicted back in February. Uh, we, we can see when you discount the, the, the flu deaths and everything else out of the picture, the excess mortality here uh, is it needs to be taken into consideration because the measures that they're taking are, are adding up. The lockdowns are killing people. And the data on the lockdowns killing people is now 10 papers deep. It can't be ignored. Uh, there are going to be lawsuits over this. There's going to be liability that they are making very grotesque moves right now. Uh, not listening uh, to, to, to certain sides of the expertise. Um, now, that brings you back to what expertise they, are, they, are they listening to. Uh, in Europe, they're listening to a group known as the SAGE Committee, and the SAGE Committee has conflicts of interest. That, that they're all involved in companies that benefit from this. So they've got to very carefully scrutinize who they're getting their advice from and what conflicts of in interest they have, because if they're involved in the vaccine industry, this will go on forever. Uh, if they're involved in the testing industry, you're going to get more testing. Uh, so the, 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 the experts that they're listening to, they need to diversify and find ones that, have, that are more conflict-free. So, Mr. Hughesong, unless you have something else, I was going to uh, wrap up and ask what we missed, uh, unless you have something else to uh, ask. So just one question on the all-cause mortality numbers. Of, so the U.S., we're counting about 240,000 COVID deaths. Am I, I'm not a statistician, I'm not a scientist, I'm just curious and looking at it. Would, for that to be an accurate number, that would have to discount as if there was zero deaths attributable to medical error. Is that statistically even possible? Uh, well, you brought up a sore point here, which is the CDC gave everyone hall passes that if you smell COVID, call it COVID. Um, so they don't even have to get a positive test to call it COVID. And there are incentives for people to call things COVID. I don't know if that's happening or driving the, the equation, but that doesn't exist in other disease models. 
So um, I do think the numbers are, are inflated. Uh, the CDC even came out suggesting that something like only, I think only 6% of them died directly of COVID. They, they had other comorbidities that got accelerated. That's also true with flu, though. You know, I mean, sure. flu, you know, you don't die necessarily directly of flu. It's usually the third condition down on the list. So, um, but they're not being compared the same way. COVID gets elevated to the top of the list on the cause of death, whereas flu is often listed, you know, as second to cancer or second to something else. Uh, that's, that's, that's changed in the COVID reporting such that if there's any, is there, if there's COVID anywhere around, it's at the top of the list. So uh, I, I think those numbers are, are inflated and the, we do need, the right thing to do is to have the um, the death certificates in the, in the medical records of all of these cases put public with, of course, the privacy of the patient removed uh, so that real statistical analysis can be done on, on what the actual impact is. That hasn't happened. And I think if you were to have that, I, uh, there's a person that we work with at Panda that is, specializes in this that looks through um, uh, you know, pathological data like this to try and discern whether this was truly COVID-induced cytokine storm that killed the patient or was it the last you know, three months of their life and COVID accelerated that by, by, by a month or two. Th- those are getting conflated in the numbers that are being reported at, at 240 or 250,000. Not that what we're doing is wrong. It's just that's not the way we've done it. So if we're looking at numbers as a comparative pur- purpose, we're not comparing accurately. Is that? No, we're not at all. And the media okay. is going absolutely bonkers trying to sensationalize this stuff. They never put up a comparative of like how many people die of opiates this year. How many what, you know, opiates are through the roof right now due to, due to lockdowns. You know, there's all of these secondary effects. TB, there's going to be more people that die of TB because of the lockdowns than there are going to be from COVID. So th- these things never get, get reported in any rational means. It's just uh, they're on a panic campaign. I personally think uh, most of the revenue right now comes from the pharmaceutical industry, and so they're probably pushing the narrative that benefits more more of that industry. Uh, I can't prove that. Uh, it's just a hunch. But you don't see the same type of fear amplified in other news sources that don't have that type of um, uh, advertisement revenue stream. So uh, the, 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 the channels upon which you're getting your information need, need to be you know, normalized a little bit. If you're just listening to the mainstream media, you're going to get – a panic-induced state of fear. Uh, and if you reach out to more places like your podcast or others and start listening to folks who don't have those sort of uh, advertisement pressures on them, you're probably going to get a more balanced view. All right. So uh, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you if you if we missed anything or if you want to elaborate a little bit more on anything. But do you think those CQ numbers are available through like a FOIL request? People are trying to get them. And the, I've seen a, few, a lot of FOIL requests going in to ask for them and the response back is they usually don't know okay uh, like we don't know what they're set at and we don't have any information for you which is a sign that we actually have to push upon politicians to get them like you you can't be making these lockdowns if you don't put that information publicly available you're calling medical cases with hidden data you can't do that okay and so what did we miss i mean we, we covered a lot here i feel like is there something that we didn't touch on enough something that we missed altogether? Uh, what would you like to leave the folks with um, I would leave the folks with, uh, if you're going to diversify your information source, take a look at what Panda 19 is doing, Panda, uh, Panda Data 19. This is a group that's an international group of scientists that don't have conflicts in, in businesses that might benefit from this and are just trying to get an understanding of what is going on in various jurisdictions so that they can get uh, a more rational discussion going on this. 
Uh, so they're doing great modeling work. They've got a great website that tracks some of these statistics. Um, a lot of great researchers and very diversified researchers, from physicians to modelers to evolution, evolutionary biologists, um, virologists, pathologists. Um, there's some genomicists in there as well. So uh, it's a great it's a great group that I found to be um, fa- fairly clarifying, at least in my exploration of what type of science is, is uh, it should be trusted right now. So I do a shout out to those folks. Awesome. Mr. McKernan, I appreciate your time. I uh, appreciate the information and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, keep up the good fight. Excellent. All right. H- thank how's, you your, how's your Bitcoin doing? Bitcoin's doing great. Oh, man. <laughs> what All can right. I say? That, that's the best advice. Bye, Bitcoin. All right. So thank, so thank you, you again, again to, to Mr. Mr. McKernan and everybody, and everybody else. else. And we'll see see everybody everybody next week. week.